Section 14 of To the Last Man by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7, Part 2. The red-haired young wife of Guy Isbel showed no change of her grave face. She had been reared in a stern school. She knew men in times like these. But Jacob's wife appealed to him. Bill, don't risk your life for a horse or two. Jacobs laughed and answered, Not much risk, and went out with Guy. To Jean their actions seemed foolhardy. He kept a keen eye on them and saw instantly when the band became aware of Guy's and Jacob's entrance into the pasture. It took only another second then to realize that Daggs and Jorth had deadly intent. Jean saw Daggs slip out of his saddle, rifle in hand. Others of the gang did likewise, until half of them were dismounted. "'Dad, they're going to shoot,' called out Jean sharply. "'Yell for Guy and Jacobs. Make them come back.' The old man shouted. Bill Isbel yelled. Blaisdell lifted his stentorian voice. Jean screamed piercingly. Guy, run, run. But Guy Isbel and his companion strode on into the pasture, as if they had not heard, and if no menacing horse thieves were within miles. They had covered about a quarter of the distance across the pasture and were nearing the horses when Jean saw red flashes and white puffs of smoke burst out from the front of that dark band of rustlers. Then followed the sharp, rattling crack of rifles. Guy Isbel stopped short, and dropping his gun, he threw up his arms and fell headlong. Jacobs acted as if he had suddenly encountered an invisible blow. He had been hit. Turning, he began to run, and ran fast for a few paces. There were more quick, sharp shots. He let go of his rifle. His running broke. Walking, reeling, staggering, he kept on. A hoarse cry came from him. Then a single rifle shot peeled out. Sean heard the bullet strike. Jacob fell to his knees and then forward on his face. Jean Isabel felt himself turned to marble. The suddenness of this tragedy paralyzed him. His gaze remained riveted on those prostrate forms. A hand clutched his arm, a shaking woman's hand, slim and hard and tense. "'Bill's killed,' whispered a broken voice. "'I was watching. They're both dead.' The wives of Jacob and Guy Isbel had slipped up behind Jean, and from behind him they had seen the tragedy. "'I asked Bill not to go,' faltered the Jacob's woman and covering her face with her hands, she groped back to the corner of the cabin, where the other women, shaken and white, received her in their arms. Guy Isbel's wife stood at the window, peering over Jean's shoulder. She had the nerve of a man. She had looked out upon death before. "'Yes, they're dead,' she said bitterly. "'And how are we going to get their bodies?' At this, Gaston Isbel seemed to rouse from the cold spell that had transfixed him. "'God, this is hell for our women,' he cried out hoarsely. "'My son, my son, murdered by the Jorths!' Then he swore a terrible oath. Jean saw the remainder of the mounted rustlers get off, and then, all of them, leading their horses, they began to move around to the left. "'Dad, they're moving round,' said Jean. 
Up to some trick, declared Bill Isbel. Bill, you make a hole through the back wall. Say about the fifth log up, ordered the father. Sure, we've got to look out. The elder son grasped the tool, and scattering the children, who had been playing near the back corner, he began to work at the point designated. The little children backed away with fixed, wondering, grave eyes. The women moved their chairs and huddled together as if waiting and listening. Jean watched the rustlers until they passed out of his sight. They had moved toward the sloping, brushy ground to the north and west of the cabins. "'Let me know when you get a hole in the back wall,' said John, and he went through the kitchen and cautiously out another door to slip into a low-roofed, shed-like end of the rambling cabin. This small space was used to store winter firewood. The chinks between the walls had not been filled with adobe clay, and he could see out on three sides. The rustlers were going into the juniper brush. They had moved out of sight and presently reappeared without their horses. It looked to Jean as if they intended to attack the cabins. Then they halted at the edge of the brush and held a long consultation. Jean could see them distinctly, though they were too far distant for him to recognize any particular man. One of them, however, stood and moved apart from the closely massed group. Evidently, from his strides and gestures, he was exhorting his listeners. Jean concluded this was either Daggs or Jorth. Whoever it was had a loud, coarse voice, and this and his actions impressed Jean with a suspicion that the man was under the influence of the bottle. Presently, Bill Isbel called to Jean in a low voice, Jean, I got the hole made, but we can't see anyone. I see them, Jean replied. They're having a powwow. Looks to me like either Jorth or Daggs is drunk. He's arguing to charge us, and the rest of the gang are holding back. Tell Dad, and all of you keep watching. I'll let you know when they make a move. Jorth's gang appeared to be in no hurry to expose their plan of battle. Gradually the group disintegrated a little. Some of them sat down, others walked to and fro. Presently, two of them went into the brush, probably back to the horses. In a few moments they reappeared, carrying a pack. And when this was deposited on the ground, all the rustlers sat down around it. They had brought food and drink. Jean had to utter a grim laugh at their coolness, and he was reminded of many daredevil deeds known to have been perpetrated by the Hash Knife Gang. Jean was glad of a reprieve. The longer the rustlers put off the attack, the more time the allies of the Isbels would have to get here. Rather hazardous, however, would it be now for anyone to attempt to get to the Isbels' cabin in the daytime. Night would be more favorable. Twice Bill Isbel came to the kitchen to whisper to Jean. The strain in the large room, from which the rustlers could not be seen, must have been great. Jean told him all he had seen and what he thought about it. Eatin' and drinkin', ejaculated Bill. Well, I'll be. That'll jar the old man. He wants to get the fight over. Tell him I said it'll be over too quick for us, unless we are mighty careful, replied Jean sharply. Bill went back, muttering to himself. 
Then followed a long wait, fraught with suspense, during which Jean watched the rustlers regale themselves. The day was hot and still, and the unnatural silence of the cabin was broken now and then by the gay laughter of the children. The sound shocked and haunted Jean. Playing children? Then another sound so faint he had to strain to hear it, disturbed and saddened him. His father's slow tread up and down the cabin floor, to and fro, to and fro. What must be in his father's heart this day? At length the rustlers rose, and with rifles in hand, they moved as one man down the slope. They came several hundred yards closer, until Jean, grimly cocking his rifle, muttered to himself that a few more rods closer would mean the end of several of that gang. They knew the range of a rifle well enough, and once more sheared off at right angles with the cabin. When they got even with the line of corrals, they stooped down and were lost to Jean's sight. This fact caused him alarm. They were, of course, crawling up on the cabins. At the end of the line of corrals ran a ditch, the bank of which was high enough to afford cover. Moreover, it ran along in front of the cabins, scarcely a hundred yards, and it was covered with grass and little clumps of brush, from behind which the rustlers could fire into the windows and through the clay chinks without any considerable risk to themselves. As they did not come into sight again, Jean concluded he had discovered their plan. Still, he waited a while longer, until he saw the faint little clouds of dust rising behind the far end of the embankment. That discovery made him rush out and through the kitchen to the large cabin, where his sudden appearance startled the men. "'Get back out of sight,' he ordered sharply, and with swift steps he reached the door and closed it. "'They're behind the bank out there by the corrals, and they're going to crawl down that ditch closer to us. It looks bad. They have grass and brush to shoot from. We've got to be mighty careful how we peep out.' "'Uh-huh. All right,' replied his father. "'You women keep the kids with you in that corner, "'and you all better lay down flat.' Blaisdell, Bill Isbel, and the old man crouched at the large window, peeping through cracks in the rough edges of the logs. Jean took his post beside the small window, with his keen eyes vibrating like a compass needle. The movement of a blade of grass the flight of a grasshopper could not escape his trained sight. "'Look sharp now,' he called to the other men. "'I see dust. They're working along almost that bare spot on the bank. I saw the tip of a rifle, a black hat, more dust. They're spreading along behind the bank.' Loud voices, and then thick clouds of yellow dust coming from behind the highest and brushiest line of the embankment attested to the truth of Jean's observations, and also to a reckless disregard of danger. Suddenly, Jean caught a glint of moving color through the fringe of brush. Instantly, he was strung like a whipcord. Then a tall, hatless, coatless man stepped up in plain sight. The sun shone on his fair, ruffled hair. Dags. "'Hey, you, Isbels,' he bawled, in magnificent, derisive boldness come out and fight. Quick as lightning, Jean threw up his rifle and fired. 
He saw tufts of fair hair fly from Daggs's head. He saw the squirt of red blood. Then quick shots from his comrades rang out. They all hit the swaying body of the rustler. But Jean knew with a terrible thrill that his bullet had killed Daggs before the other three struck. Daggs fell forward, his arms and half his body resting over the embankment. Then the rustlers dragged him back out of sight. Hoarse shouts rose. A cloud of yellow dust drifted away from the spot. Daggs burst out Gaston Isbel. Jean, you knocked off the top of his head. I seen that when I was pulling the trigger. Sure we over here wasted our shots. God, he must have been crazier drunk to pop up there. And brace us that way, says Blaisdell, breathing hard. Arizona's bad for Texans, replied Isbel sardonically. Sure it's been too peaceful here. Rustlers have no practice at fighting, and I reckon Daggs forgot. Daggs made as crazy a move as that of Guy and Jacobs, spoke up Jean. They were overbold, and he was drunk. Let them be a lesson to us. Jean had smelled whiskey upon his entrance to the cabin. Bill was a hard drinker, and his father was not immune. Blaisdell, too, drank heavily upon occasions. Jean made a mental note that he would not permit their chances to become impaired by liquor. Rifles began to crack, and puffs of smoke rose all along the embankment for the space of a hundred feet. Bullets whistled through the rude window casing and spattered on the heavy door, and one split the clay between the logs before Jean narrowly missing him. Another volley followed, then another. The rustlers had repeating rifles, and they were emptying their magazines. Jean changed his position. The other men profited by his wise move. The volleys had merged into one continuous rattling roar of rifle shots. Then came a sudden cessation of reports with silence of relief. The cabin was full of dust, mingled with the smoke from the shots of Jean and his companions. Jean heard the stifled breaths of the children. Evidently they were terror-stricken, but they did not cry out. The woman uttered no sound. A loud voice pealed from behind the embankment. "'Come out and fight. Do you Isbels want to be killed like sheep?' This sally gained no reply. Jean returned to his post by the window, and his comrades followed his example. And they exercised extreme caution when they peeped out. "'Boys, don't shoot till you see one,' said Gaston Isbel. "'Maybe after a while they'll get careless, but Jorth will never show himself.' The rustlers did not again resort to volleys. One by one, from different angles, they began to shoot, and they were not firing at random. A few bullets came straight in at the windows to pat into the walls. A few others ticked and splintered the edges of the windows, and most of them broke through the clay chinks between the logs. It dawned upon Jean that these dangerous shots were not accident. They were well aimed, and most of them hit low down. The cunning rustlers had some unerring riflemen, and they were picking out the vulnerable places all along the front of the cabin. If Jean had not been lying flat, he would have been hit twice. Presently, he conceived the idea of driving pegs between the logs high up and kneeling on these. 
he managed to peep out from the upper edge of the window. But this position was awkward and difficult to hold for long. He heard a bullet hit one of his comrades. Whoever had been struck never uttered a sound. Jean turned to look. Bill Isbel was holding his shoulder, where red splotches appeared on his shirt. He shook his head at Jean, evidently to make light of the wound. The women and children were lying face down and could not see what was happening. Plain it was that Bill did not want them to know. Blaisdell bound up the bloody shoulder with a scarf. Steady firing from the rustlers went on at the rate of one shot every few minutes. The Isbels did not return these. John did not fire again that afternoon. Toward sunset, when the besiegers appeared to grow restless or careless, Blaisdell fired at something moving behind the brush, and Gaston Isbel's huge buffalo gun boomed out. "'Well, what are they going to do after dark, and what are we going to do?' grumbled Blaisdell. "'Reckon they'll never charge us,' said Gaston. "'They might set fire to the cabin,' added Bill Isbel. He appeared to be the gloomiest of the Isbel faction. There was something on his mind. "'Well, the Jorths are bad, but I reckon they'll not burn us alive,' replied Blaisdell. "'Ah!' ejaculated Gaston Isbel. Much you know about Lee Jorth, he would skin me alive and throw red-hot coals on my raw flesh. So they talked during the hour, from sunset to dark. Jean Isabel had little to say. He was revolving possibilities in his mind. Darkness brought a change in the attack of the rustlers. They stationed men at four points around the cabins, and every few minutes one of these outposts would fire. These bullets embedded themselves in the logs, causing but little anxiety to the Isbels. "'Jean, what you make of it?' asked the old rancher. "'Looks to me this way,' replied Jean. "'They're set for a long fight. They're shooting just to let us know they're on the watch.' "'Uh-huh. Well, what are you going to do about it?' "'I'm going out there presently.' Gaston Isabel grunted his satisfaction at this intention of Jean's. All was pitch dark inside the cabin. The women had water and food at hand. Jean kept a sharp lookout from his window while he ate his supper of meat, bread, and milk. At last the children, worn out by the long day, fell asleep. The women whispered a little in their corner. About nine o'clock, Jean signified his intention of going out to reconnoiter. Dad, they got the best of us in the daytime, he said, but not after dark. Jean buckled on a belt that carried shells, a bowie knife, and a revolver, and with rifle in hand, he went out through the kitchen to the yard. The night was darker than usual, as some of the stars were hidden by clouds. He leaned against the log cabin, waiting for his eyes to become perfectly adjusted to the darkness. Like an Indian, Jean could see well at night. He knew every point around the cabins and sheds and corrals, every post, log, tree, rock, adjacent to the ranch. After perhaps a quarter of an hour watching, during which time several shots were fired from behind the embankment and one each from the rustlers at the other locations, Jean slipped out on his quest. He kept in the shadow of the cabin walls. 
then the line of orchard trees, then a row of currant bushes. Here, crouching low, he halted to look and listen. He was now at the edge of the open ground, with the gently rising slope before him. He could see the dark patches of cedar and juniper trees. On the north side of the cabin, a streak of fire flashed in the blackness, and a shot rang out. Jean heard the bullet hit the cabin. Then silence enfolded the lonely ranch, and the darkness lay like a black blanket. A low hum of insects pervaded the air. Dull sheets of lightning illumined the dark horizon to the south. Once Jean heard voices, but he could not tell from which direction they came. To the west of him then flared out another rifle shot. The bullet whistled down over Jean, the thud into the cabin. Jean made a careful study of the obscure, gray-black open before him, and then the background to his rear. So long as he kept the dense shadows behind him, he could not be seen. He slipped from behind his covert, and gliding with absolute noiseless footsteps, he gained the first clump of junipers. Here he waited patiently and motionlessly for another round of shots from the rustlers. After the second shot from the west side, Jean sheered off to the right. Patches of brush, clumps of juniper, and isolated cedars covered this slope, affording Jean a perfect means for his purpose, which was to make a detour and come up behind the rustler who was firing from that side. Jean climbed to the top of the ridge, descended the opposite slope, made his turn to the left, and slowly worked up behind the point near where he expected to locate the rustler. Long habit in the open by day and night rendered his sense of direction almost as perfect as sight itself. The first flash of fire he saw from this side proved that he had come straight up toward his man. Jean's intention was to crawl up on this one of the Jorth gang and silently kill him with a knife. If the plan worked successfully, Jean meant to work round to the next rustler. Laying aside his rifle, he crawled forward on hands and knees, making no more sound than a cat. His approach was slow. He had to pick his way. Be careful not to break twigs nor rattle stones. His buckskin garments made no sound against the brush. John located the rustler, sitting on the top of the ridge in the center of an open space. He was alone. Jean saw the dull red end of the cigarette he was smoking. The ground on the ridge was rocky and not well adapted for Jean's purpose. He had to abandon the idea of crawling up on the rustler, whereupon Jean turned back patiently and slowly to get his rifle. Upon securing it, he began to retrace his course, this time more slowly than before, as he was hampered by the rifle. But he did not make the slightest sound, and at length he reached the edge of the open ridge top, once more to espy the dark form of the rustler silhouetted against the sky. The distance was not more than fifty yards. As Jean rose to his knee and carefully lifted his rifle round to avoid the twigs of a juniper, he suddenly experienced another emotion beside the one of grim, hard wrath at the Jorths. It was an emotion that sickened him, made him weak internally, a cold shaking 
ungovernable sensation. Suppose this man was Ellen Jorth's father. Jean lowered the rifle. He felt it shake over his knee. He was trembling all over. The astounding discovery that he did not want to kill Ellen's father, that he could not do it, awakened Jean to the despairing nature of his love for her. In this grim moment of indecision, when he knew his Indian subtlety and ability gave him a great advantage over the Jorths, he fully realized his strange, hopeless, and irresistible love for the girl. He made no attempt to deny it any longer. Like the night and the lonely wilderness around him, like the inevitableness of this Jorth-Isbel feud, this love of his was a thing, a fact, a reality. He breathed to his own inward ear, to his soul. He could not kill Ellen Jorth's father. Feud or no feud, Isbel or not, he could not deliberately do it. And why not? There was no answer. Was he not faithless to his father? He had no hope of ever winning Ellen Jorth. He did not want the love of a girl of her character. But he loved her. And the struggle must be against the insidious and mysterious growth of that passion. It swayed him already. It made him a coward. Through his mind and heart swept the memory of Ellen Jorth, her beauty and charm, her boldness and pathos, her shame and her degradation. And the sweetness of her outweighed the boldness, and the mystery of her arrayed itself in unquenchable protest against her acknowledged shame. Jean lifted his face to the heavens, to the pitiless white stars, to the infinite depths of the dark blue sky. He could sense the fact of his being an atom in the universe of nature. What was he? What was his revengeful father? What were hate and passion and strife in comparison to the nameless something, immense and everlasting, that he sensed in this dark moment? But the rustlers, Dags, the Jorths, they had killed his brother Guy, murdered him brutally and ruthlessly. Guy had been a playmate of Jean's, a favorite brother. Bill had been secretive and selfish. Jean had never loved him as he did Guy. Guy lay dead down there on the meadow. This feud had begun to run its bloody course. Jean steeled his nerve. The hot blood crept back along his veins. The dark and masterful tide of revenge waved over him. The keen edge of his mind then cut out sharp and trenchant thoughts. He must kill when and where he could. This man could hardly be Ellen Jorth's father. Jorth would be with the main crowd, directing hostilities. Jean could shoot this rustler guard, and his shot would be taken by the gang as the regular one from their comrade. Then swiftly Jean leveled his rifle, covered the dark form, grew cold and set, and pressed the trigger. After the report, he rose and wheeled away. He did not look nor listen for the result of his shot. A clammy sweat wet his face, the hollow of his hands, his breasts. A horrible, leaden, thick sensation oppressed his heart. Nature had endowed him with Indian gifts, but the exercise of them to this end caused a revolt in his soul. Nevertheless, it was the Isbel blood that dominated him. The wind blew cool on his face. The burden upon his shoulders seemed to lift. 
the clamoring whispers grew fainter in his ears, and by the time he had retraced his cautious steps back to the orchard, all his physical being was strung to the task at hand. Something had come between his reflective self and this man of action. Crossing the lane, he took to the west line of sheds and passed beyond them into the meadow. In the grass he crawled silently away to the right, using the same precaution that had actuated him on the slope. Only here he did not pause so often nor move so slowly. Jean aimed to go far enough to the right to pass the end of the embankment behind which the rustlers had found such efficient cover. This ditch had been made to keep water during the spring thaws and summer storms from pouring off the slope to flood the corrals. Jean miscalculated and found he had come upon the embankment somewhat to the left of the end, which fact, however, caused him no uneasiness. He lay there a while to listen. Again he heard voices. After a time, a shot pealed out. He did not see the flash, but he calculated that it had come from the north side of the cabins. The next quarter of an hour discovered to Jean that the nearest guard was firing from the top of the embankment, perhaps a hundred yards distant, and a second one was performing the same office from a point apparently only a few yards further on. Two rustlers close together. Jean had not calculated upon that. For a while he pondered on what was best to do, and at length decided to crawl round behind them and as close as the situation made advisable. He found the ditch behind the embankment a favorable path by which to stalk these enemies. It was dry and sandy, with borders of high weeds. The only drawback was that it was almost impossible for him to keep from brushing against the dry, invisible branches of the weeds. To offset this, he wormed his way like a snail, inch by inch, taking a long time before he caught sight of the sitting figure of a man, black against a dark blue sky. This rustler had fired his rifle three times during Jean's slow approach. Jean watched and listened for a few moments, then wormed himself closer and closer, until the man was within twenty steps of him. Jean smelled tobacco smoke, but he could see no light of pipe or cigarette, because the fellow's back was turned. "'Say, Ben,' said this man to his companion, sitting hunched up a few yards distant. "'Sure it strikes me queer that Summers ain't shooting over there.' Jean recognized the dry, drawling voice of Greaves, and the shock of it seemed to contract the muscles of his whole thrilling body, like that of a panther about to spring. End of Chapter 7 Part 2